Hello, I'm Stuart Cheddenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Joe Gerstan, the speaker, author, and advisor on diversity and inclusion. Joe Gerstan is a speaker, author, and advisor bringing clarity, action, and impact to organizational diversity and inclusion efforts. Joe has worked with Fortune 100 corporations, small nonprofits, and everything in between, and is a regular conference speaker. His writing is featured in numerous professional publications, and he is the co-author of the book Social Gravity, Harnessing the Natural Laws of Relationships. Joe grew up on a family farm in northwest Iowa, served four years in the United States Marine Corps, and is a veteran of operations Desert Shield and Desert Storm. After attending Iowa State University, he then spent six years working in management and business development for technology and communication companies. A career change took him to a grassroots nonprofit organization where he found his calling in diversity and inclusion. A strong advocate for resetting the diversity and inclusion conversation, Josie's diversity and inclusion is poorly understood and often misunderstood. Today, Joe believes that we can ill afford to continue applying 20th century approaches to an increasingly critical set of 21st century issues. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Paint the picture, if you will, of life growing up on a family farm in Northwest Iowa. Yeah, so uh, it was a long time ago for starters. So um, rural parts of Northwest Iowa, small family farm uh, scattered among a whole bunch of family farms. And this was pre-internet. So we were pretty removed from the world in a lot of ways. I graduated uh, with a class of 26 to give you a sense of the size. Um, And I graduated, uh, for what it's worth, I graduated 13th out of 26. And I've tried to maintain that mediocrity throughout my uh, entire career. But we weren't exposed to very much. There was very little uh, diversity in my school, in the town uh, where my school was, and we just weren't exposed to a lot. Not only did we not have the internet, um, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't have cable. We literally had three television channels, and I think they all went off the air at midnight, uh, was exposed, you know, was exposed to limits, uh, limited music, only had a few radio stations. So it was much more isolated uh, then than that part of the world would be today. The internet has changed uh, a lot of that. But uh, so um, kind of quiet, uh, kind of secluded, um, you know, by the time we graduated, you knew everyone in your class and you had you had dated most of them and you knew their families and uh, everyone was either, you know, everyone's family was either farming or uh, involved in agriculture uh, in some way. Was it something of a shock to emerge into a bigger world then because the picture you paint is almost sort of Truman Show-esque, contained, constrained within this this bubble in some ways that, and you artfully describe it. So do you remember being surprised at the rest of the world when you encountered it? I, I, I do remember that. And it was, it was kind of a bubble um, and it was, it was a nice bubble. Um, and I don't think I was aware at the time that I was in a bubble, but um, you know, I left that bubble, uh, you know, kind of connecting this to the diversity and inclusion conversation. I left that bubble thinking that I knew things about people that were African-American, Hispanic, Latino, Jewish, Buddhist, vegetarian, gay, lesbian. I knew 
I had ideas what those things meant. I had never had a relationship with anybody from any of those groups. Um, I just picked up these, you know, stereotypical ideas from friends and family and the media. And, and I still have some, re- some memories of interacting with people based on not truths about them, but things that I assumed to know about them and bumping up against that and saying, oh, isn't that interesting? Uh, this person doesn't meet my expectations. And oh, where do those expectations come from? Um, and I still reflect on some of those uh, encounters. And Fortunately, I met a lot of very uh, nice, kind, patient people uh, in my life as I, as I stumbled through some of that. But, but I do still have some very clear memories of realizing that I had come a little bit out of a bubble. Are you able to perhaps give an explicit example of a perception you had about the nature of difference in maybe one of the categories you've described, but then yeah. finding that expectation actually meet the reality of someone else's experience in that category? Right. Uh, so uh, one of the things that I did as an adult um, after high school is I served four years in the Marine Corps. And um, uh, a couple years into the Marine Corps, I was stationed in Okinawa, Japan, and I had a roommate over there. And uh, his name was John Perry. John Perry, who I still miss to this day and have not relocated. Uh, John Perry from East St. Louis, if anyone can point me in the right direction. And and he ended up being one of the best friends that I had while I was in the Marine Corps, African-American gentleman. Um, and I remember we were roommates and we were getting to know each other and we were both very friendly with each other. And outside of the barracks where we lived in was a basketball court. And I, one thing that I knew about folks that were African-American was that they enjoyed watching and playing basketball. They took it very seriously. They were all very good at it. I mean, that was just part of what I had picked up about that particular social group. And I can remember John Perry telling me that he didn't really play basketball and we were out shooting some hoops and he had a horrible shot. And it never occurred to me that that was the truth. It occurred, what occurred to me was he's, there's a, there's a punchline coming here somewhere. He's setting me up for something. It never occurred to me that that was actually, that, that what he had told me about himself, that he wasn't interested in basketball, he didn't watch it, he could, didn't enjoy playing it. It, it. it took a while for me to, for it to occur to me that that was actually true because I assumed on a very fundamental level that I knew something else was true about him. And again, uh, fortunately, very kind, very patient guy. I think he saw what was going on much sooner than I did. Um, and this is also part of why I think we need to reset some parts of this conversation because so much of the conversation about this work is about about fighting this blind hatred. And that's certainly an important thing to do. But, you know, I, I reflect back on this particular situation. I had no hatred towards this gentleman. He was, he had already become a friend. He was on his way to becoming a very good friend. I had respect and uh, affection for him, but um, I had come from a pretty small, narrow world and I had picked up some lessons that I wasn't even aware that I was carrying and it was showing up in, in my interactions with people. And so, and, and, and that's one that I still remember clearly because uh, each time I reflect back on it, I have a little bit of a pain because I did become such good friends with him. Um, but I think, you know, there's probably dozens of those experiences in my life. And I think there's dozens of those experiences in most people's lives in some way or another. Do you look back and recognize that perhaps you were different to the other kids with whom you grew up? Um, Gosh, that's a good question. I don't think... Um, I don't know how I would answer that question for sure. What I will say is that um, one of the fairly consistent feelings in my life is that I've been different from the people around me. Um, and I, I'm a, 
straight, white, middle-class male that lives in the middle of the country. I've never faced anything in the form of intentional discrimination or exclusion, but I have, and and this may be just an internal thing, but I have pretty consistently in life not felt like I fit in. Um, I think that's probably one of the reasons why when I found this work, it resonated with me to some extent. Um, But I don't know that I ever you know, got clear on what it was that I thought was different about me, but, but a, a feeling of not quite fitting in uh, pretty consistent. Does that feeling have, what I'm driving towards is what it was in your formative years that perhaps you, you can look back on and just say, oh, I see, I see now how when I was in my teens, I would be called at some point to diversity and inclusion. I didn't know it at the time. I was too young to make sense of it. Oh, goodness, no. Um, If the people that I was in high school in the Marine Corps with met me now, they would not recognize me. Um, I, I... kind of have come from one end of the spectrum to the other on this set of issues. When I, uh, when I graduated high school and I was a young adult, um, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have owned the fact that I had a lot of racist ideas and beliefs, but I did. Um, I was probably fairly blatantly and proudly sexist, um, homophobic off the charts. Um, so um, I, I don't think that's the case that I saw myself doing this work. I think, you know, one of the points of connection that I draw between the work that I do now and, and the Marine Corps, which was my first job, was that um, the Marine Corps was the first time that I really felt like I was doing something of value. Like we served a valuable purpose. And when I left the Marine Corps, I went to college and then I spent some time in the corporate world. And that feeling was very noticeably missing. Um, and it It wasn't until I went to work in the nonprofit space and started to do stuff around diversity inclusion that I felt like I was, um, you know, part of something significant. I was involved in making the world a better place. So let's let's explore that journey a little bit then, which I think will give us a good platform to talk about what diversity and inclusion means and why it is of value, especially to you. So the journey seems to begin in that case with the Marine Corps. And why did you join? Boy, that's another good question. I don't know if I have a good answer for. I I really think mostly I joined because I wanted to get away. Um, I, uh, at a very young age, had an allergy to being told what to do. And so was just looking for a way to get away from home, even though I came from a very healthy, very loving uh, family. Uh, Just wanted to get away and wanted to get a long way away. And the Marine Corps was a way to do that. And fortunately for me, um, it worked for me. I drank the Kool-Aid. I, I really, really enjoyed the Marine Corps. And I know sometimes people get into commitments like that and they realize they made a mistake. And I think that's a pretty long four years. I really enjoyed the Marine Corps. It was a great experience for me. Um, I think I had a lot of growing up to do. Uh, that was a good place to do it. I got to see some things. I was exposed to quite a bit of difference. And I, you know, once I got in the Marine Corps and I kind of figured it out, I re- like I said, I really felt like I was a, a part of something, you know, of value. What were, if I can ask, some of the experiences that were both enjoyable in in the sense I might be able to use that word, but also really character forming for you? 
Yeah. So, I mean, boot camp um, is a pretty crazy experience in the Marine Corps. You t- they take, you know, 60 or 70 or 80 people scattered from all over the place and they dress them the same and they shave their heads and they make them do all of this stuff together. And so I wasn't using the words diversity and identity and things like that, but I think I was learning some really interesting lessons right there because, you know, there were people that looked like they were very different than I was, that I had a lot of things in common with. And there were also people that looked very very similar to me who came from a very different world, a very different background, a very different life than I had. And so I think there was some important lessons learned there. Um, you know, I got to travel a lot and that was wonderful. And, and I don't think I had any interest in, in really traveling when I joined the Marine Corps, but I spent a year in Iceland um, and Iceland's a beautiful place. A year is probably too long for a, a single 19 year old, but it's a beautiful place. And once I went to Iceland, I was kind of hooked on the idea of seeing things that were different because there's just, there's so much interesting stuff out there. There's differences in how people dress and their food and their customs. And, and, and I think you have to go there and see it to really feel that. Um, and, and you give, you have the opportunity to pick some of those things up and, and, and wrap them up into you. Um, so I spent a year in Iceland. I traveled all over the place in the States. I spent a month in Thailand, which was also amazing. Um, I spent nine months in Okinawa, Japan. Uh, and then, uh, my unit went over to the Middle East for Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. We were in the Middle East for, oh, three or four months. Um, and then came back to the States. So got to see a lot um, and met a lot of interesting people. Which then begs the question, why did you leave after four years? Yeah, that was that was kind of a touch and go thing. I think uh, once I got into the Marine Corps and I liked it and I was successful, I think for about three years, I was pretty strongly leaning towards staying in, making it my career. Um, and then at the end, I, I, I was going back and forth the past, the, the last six months or so. Uh, and at the end, I decided to get out and give college a try. I felt like if I missed it enough, I could always come back in, possibly come back in as an officer. Uh, but that was one of the, at that point in my life, whether to get in or, or get out, whether to stay in or get out was probably the most difficult decision that I'd made. So you left the Marines, went to college. How did you go about the process of deciding sort of first that you were going to go to college and then deciding which one and what you wanted to study? Um, I, I probably should have put a little bit more thought into that. Um, I wanted to go to college because I had the GI Bill. It paid for a chunk of it. My family had always wanted me to go to college. Um, I was potentially going to be the first one in our family that had a college degree. Um, and it seemed like a decent thing to me. When I got out of high school, I didn't have really any interest in going to more school, uh, partly because I didn't know what I wanted to do when I grew up. So nothing seemed terribly relevant. But after spending four years in the Marine Corps, it made a little bit more sense. It seemed like a good investment. Um, I still had the problem of not really knowing what I wanted to do when I grew up. And so because I came from a farming family and my dad was interested in having me come back and farm. I ended up studying agricultural business, which I am clearly putting to good use. Uh, but, uh, but, but another interesting experience. And one of the things that really caught me off guard going from the Marine Corps to college was pretty big culture shock. Um, the Marine Corps is a unique culture, um, different norms, different communication style. And I had adopted all that stuff and it just felt normal until I was in a very different place. 
my first semester, I actually lived in the dorms and, you know, these, uh, you know, I was a, I was a grizzled, you know, 22 year old veteran and these, these 18 and 19 year old kids didn't make any sense to me. And so there was, you know, it took me probably six months to a year to, um, I guess, get back to being a full civilian again. How did they respond to you? Um, I think they were a little bit freaked out and intimidated. I have kind of a serious demeanor anyway, and I think I was very serious and very intense when I first came out of the Marine Corps. Uh, you know, I walked a certain way and I stood a certain way and I talked a certain way. And I think, um, I think, you know, I didn't make a lot of friends in that dorm. I made one good friend. Um, I don't know if anybody else, uh, you know, cared for me much at all. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Joe Gerstan. So you get through college. Did it just feel to you that, of course, the natural thing that one would do with a college degree is one goes to work for corporate America? Yes. Yeah, that did kind of make sense. And, and um, I, I had about as accurate of an idea of corporate America before I went into it as I had of the Marine Corps before I went into it. You know, I grew up in a farming community. I'd never knew anyone growing up that had a nine to five job. It sounded like an amazing thing compared to farming, but I didn't know what that was like. Uh, but I know that very shortly after getting into that first corporate role, I was kind of looking around saying, this is insanity. You know, the only thing that I had to evaluate it against was life on the farm and the Marine Corps. And it was very different than that. And it seemed in some ways it seemed very uh, inferior to that, especially uh, I was missing some of the strong leadership that I exhibited uh, in the Marine Corps. I had some really tremendous leaders uh, in the Marine Corps. And so at first uh, the corporate world seemed kind of like a crazy place to me. And, and to some extent it, it still does, but it was uh, it was really bewildering at first. And, and then I came to the conclusion that it was probably just that company. Uh, and I went to work for another company and, you know, shenanigans and strangeness. And, and so that's just part of it. But, but, but again, part of that is because of where I came from and, and what my expectations were. Could you put some meat to the phrase shenanigans, which of course is a, <laughs> a magnificent word. <clears throat> However, uh, I'm wondering, so, so, so what do shenanigans look like to someone who is expecting a, a different type of structure or behavior? Yeah, um, I, I, I guess, 
you know, the Marine Corps, I had gotten used to a pretty direct sense of communication, a pretty direct form of communication. Um, there was certainly times where we didn't have anything to do in the Marine Corps and we sat around and we wasted time. I think that's part of the military and part of the government in general. But but when we had things to do, we were very driven and efficient about getting them done. And, and that seemed to be missing in the corporate space. There was lots of meetings. There was meetings about meetings. There was conversations about meetings, about meetings. Um, there was lots and lots of policy. Um, it just, it, it was different and it seemed like some of that stuff was very unnecessary because I'd seen things done a different way. Um, I think in a lot of corporate organizations, HR plays kind of a babysitting role to some extent. And in the Marine Corps, there wasn't the need for that because there just wasn't a lot of space for personal drama. Um, you were expected to work things out on your own. And that was a pretty strong expectation. And, and I think we give folks a lot of other ways to address that uh, in most workplaces. At this point, were you thinking, I, I don't think that this is true perhaps now for your work, and we can maybe explore this in, in a little while here, but did you, in those first corporate experiences, start to think to yourself, if only the corporate world was managed and led like the Marine Corps? A little bit, a little bit. I knew there were, you know, the Marine Corps is a unique organization. It has a unique mission. Um, I don't think most organizations can operate like that, but I certainly saw some things that I thought uh, could benefit the workplace that I'd seen in the Marine Corps. Again, not every leader in the Marine Corps is amazing, but really a pretty uh, heavy focus on strong leadership, developing uh, a certain kind of leadership. And I saw, uh, not in every organization I've worked with, but worked for, but in several, um, people just get promoted and they're just expected to take on a different role. And, um, and um, you know, I, I think those organizations struggle because you know, of that. You know, it's kind of funny to me to think that the transition from 20th century styles of organizational structure and leadership into the 21st century versions of those still perpetuate the use of the military or sports mm. as metaphors right. for how organizations should be structured and run. Right. Seems particularly odd to me. Yes, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Were there any examples of just being totally befuddled by what was happening in these corporations? Well, I, I saw pretty consistently one of the things that always frustrated me was when, I mean, if you have a group of people working together, there's going to be issues, there's going to be conflict, there's going to be uh, personality clashes. And in the Marine Corps, we were pretty good at about working those things out on an individual level, on a small group level. Uh, the workspace, the workplace makes it very easy to avoid working that stuff out. This person goes and talks to their manager about their problem with this person, and and there's multiple chains of command involved, and HR gets involved, and small issues that I think fully formed adult human beings should take responsibility for develop into large issues, and they uh, they use a lot of resources in avoiding dealing with them. I, I've seen that happen at multiple organizations, and so so that's one example uh, of what I'm talking about. Um, I think giving people, you know, another difference I saw in the Marine Corps, you got pretty clear feedback, um, good and bad on a pretty regular basis. That's another place where the workplace really seems to struggle. There seems to be a fear of giving people uh, negative feedback. And so the feedback ends up not being terribly valuable. 
So you left the yep. corporate world and yep. you went to a nonprofit. Yep. Um, speak a little bit about what you did and and how you discovered uh, different insights. Yeah. So uh, there, it, there was actually a pretty dark period in my life because uh, I, I don't know, I'm pretty closely connected to my work. And so I went through this period of time where five or six years, I was kind of professionally unsatisfied. I can still remember the feeling of laying awake in bed at night with a pit in my stomach because I was dreading the idea of going to work the next day. And that you know, in my experience, that's a pretty dark place uh, to be. And, and I really thought something was wrong uh, with me. Um, and so I decided I needed to do something different. I didn't know what it was. Um, and I started doing a whole bunch of volunteering uh, in the community. I wanted to get out there and see what kind of other opportunities were available. I wanted to meet more people and broaden my network because I just hadn't found my place. And one of the organizations that I was doing some volunteer work was Nebraska AIDS Project, wonderful grassroots organization. Uh, that provides care and support for people living with HIV and AIDS and also does HIV prevention education. I joined their speakers bureau and um, I can still remember the day I was sitting in my apartment. I got an email from uh, the person who had done my volunteer training, uh, Jill Jeffries, and she emailed me and said, I'm leaving. Uh, I think you'd be really wonderful in this role. Would you be interested in applying? And, you know, a light bulb went off in my head. I, I said, you know, I'm horribly unqualified, but absolutely I would be interested uh, in this job because because even though I hadn't clarified in my mind what I wanted to do, I knew that that kind of work environment was very appealing to me because I could feel the passion and the energy and the creativity there. And although I was horribly unqualified, I got the job and that job very different uh, in some ways in the Marine Corps was every bit as transformational as the Marine Corps was. Those two jobs um, I got more out of uh, than any other work experience that I had. And so I learned a lot about a new body of work, but I also, uh, for one of the first times, was just always in the minority. There's not a lot of straight white guys in that work and I was always in the minority. Um, I was working with and around and on behalf of people that were different than I was they'd had different life experiences. They'd been treated differently by institutions, organizations, not because of, of what they'd done, but simply because of who they were. And I was still at a place in my life where I didn't think a lot of that happened. Um, I thought a lot of what we were still dealing with was kind of this unintentional stuff, but I was exposed to a whole bunch of new data. And 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 also I felt like I was part of something that, that really mattered again. And so some, some fires lit back up um, again in that work. And I knew that I was kind of back on the right track. I didn't know what, you know, what exactly the work was, but I knew that I was back on the right track. I think the modern expression maybe is, is lean in. I think for some people, what you're describing would be quite daunting. It sounds as if it, it lit that fire. It re-energized you in, in many ways and you lent into it. Were there any moments where, uh, to perpetuate that phrase, you lent back because it, it seemed so alien and different that it was hard for you to get your, both your head and perhaps your heart around? I don't think there was. I think there was um, times when I stubbed my toe and there was times when that was painful because I was still learning. I was still clueless about some things. I still made some mistakes and was clumsy. Um, but I don't think that I ever lent, uh, leaned back out. Um, I was kind of trying to get as much as I could out of that experience. Um, um, so I don't think so, no. So how did that experience, well, well let me ask first, how, how long was that? Um, I worked for Nebraska AIDS Project for about three years. Okay. So during, during that period of time, 
What are some of the insights and revelations that, that occurred to you that were the catalyst for you moving into the work that we're going to talk about in a second? You know, I, w- I would say large chunks, probably the majority of my worldview changed in those three years. Um, that job caused me to go back and really study the civil rights movement. It caused me to go back and study the women's movement. Um, I studied, you know, I, I had some idea, we were talking a little bit about this earlier. I had some idea of who Malcolm X was. I went back and actually learned who Malcolm X was. Um, I read a lot of things about the labor movement. I just, I came to a new appreciation of history specifically in this country of social movements of injustice. Um, and I realized that, you know, I had been kind of checked out. Um, I, you know, one of the books that I read was a, a book called And the Band Played On, which really does a beautiful job of step-by-step witnessing the story of HIV and AIDS in this country, um, talking about the reality of what was happening. And at the same time, talking about kind of the disconnect on a national level uh, and certainly with the government support. And, and I couldn't read that book book without also being aware of where I was and what I was doing in 1983 and 1984 and 1985 and 1986 when some of those things were happening. I couldn't overlook the fact that as a senior in high school for my speech class, I gave a speech that was about how um, AIDS was God's way of punishing us for allowing homosexuality to exist. Like I, like I couldn't disconnect from that um, and this terrible, this terrible story that had played out in our country. And so I felt this very you know, personal sense of connection because I also knew people that had lived through that on the other side. I was getting to know uh, clients in our organization. So um, you know, I was tackling ideas of identity and privilege and really learning what racism is and really learning what sexism is. Um, in some ways, I was kind of starting from ground zero. Um, like I said, I had some some kind of twisted, inaccurate views and ideas before that, but a lot of that changed um, in the in that three year period of time. I'm not sure objectively that you have anything to be uh, guilty about. How much of your work now is an act of contrition or an act of self forgiveness for views and behaviors that you held when you were younger? Yeah, some of it for sure. I, I don't know that I can sort it out and tell you how much of it is, but some of it is for sure. I mean, every every, every time I read a story about a, a young high school student who commits suicide uh, because they're being bullied about their sexual orientation, you know, I, I can be a heartbroken by that, but I also can't separate it from the fact that when I was 13 and 14 and 15, I would have been the one in that story doing the bullying. Um, and I've come to see things a different way. And, um, you know, you know, one of the aspirations of this work is that we can, moving forward, we can avoid that. We can reach people more effectively. We can reach them at different places in their life. Um, you know, the tricky part of it is I think everybody's got a different code. Um, one message delivered in one format doesn't work for everyone. I had a lot of seeds dropped around me. Um, so I think there is, you, you do have to approach this work in a lot of different ways. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. You got under my skin again You raised the stakes, took your time and made your move Your tongue said, come, cowboy, won't you stay then you closed your hazel eyes Make like a tree, lay down some roots Well, mama had to split 
Papa can't forget to me and the baby's grew. I spent so much time cutting ties that bind. Seemed even the wind was looking to turn me loose. Listen, I'm not saying I cannot change. Not saying I'm not afraid. Sure ain't the first the blues have kicked around. I know part of me is wicked, although some of me is brave. Straight to the up bed, lay you down. You say, I don't want to hear how better off she'll be at dawn when the rooster crows. So play me a song if something goes wrong, nobody has to go. I'm Stuart Chittenden. My guest today is Joe Gerstan. So let's talk about the work, which I think is the really important aspect that's driving you, that you're passionate about. You said in your bio that you see diversity and inclusion as poorly understood and often misunderstood. What do you mean by that? Well, um, for example... Um, even though those words have become incredibly popular, um, inclusion is maybe one of the most popular words in the workplace right right now. It's right up there with innovation and engagement, despite the fact that it's incredibly popular. In most organizations, I can ask 10 leaders at random what inclusion is, why it's valuable, and how we capture that value, and I will probably get 10 different answers. Seven or eight of them won't even make any sense. They'll just be this string of really nice words. Um, It's become a very popular idea, but it's still a vague, abstract idea in most organizations. Most leaders are talking about it and saying positive things about it because they're expected to today. Um, And I don't think a lot of organizations or a lot of leaders are really grounded in uh, what these words really mean and the work and the dynamics involved. And And this is why you have while you have organizations saying big and beautiful and profound things about diversity and inclusion, those same organizations are oftentimes doing almost nothing. Uh, they're hanging up posters, they're having ethnic potlucks, and they're doing nothing beyond that. And that's still pretty common in the workplace today. There are the two words, diversity right. and inclusion. And that would be the common phrase that would be used in this field in both, I think, both the corporate and uh, the, the for-profit and the non-profit worlds. What does that phrase, what do those words mean from your point of view? Right. And I would throw in there, you know, the word equity is in increasingly being added to that language in some places, especially nonprofits, education, maybe healthcare. You also talk about cultural competency. There are, there are some other things. I work mostly with for-profit organizations, medium to large, and, and usually it's diversity and inclusion. And I think that, you know, diversity and inclusion are both big, complex topics. The words can mean different things to different people, but I think for an organization or a team to do some real work and have actionable conversations, they've got to have a common language. And so I always spend a little bit of time talking about language, not uh, in the hopes of giving people language, but just letting them know how I use the words and why to inform their own thinking. In my experience, most people haven't stopped to think about specifically what they mean when they say those words or why they mean that particular thing. Uh, As far as the word diversity, 
simplicity goes, I like my definitions very simple. When I look that word up in the dictionary, it tells me that the word means difference. And so that is specifically what I mean when I use the word diversity. I mean difference. Uh, and difference takes a lot of different forms. Um, and, and not all of those forms are equal, but they are the same kinds of things. They are forms of difference. Um, and I think that one of the reasons why our conversations around things like race and gender and orientation continue to be as difficult as they are is because I don't think we have a, a good understanding for how difference impacts us intentionally and unintentionally. Um, and I use the word inclusion in a couple of ways. I use the word inclusion to talk about the work of inclusion. Um, and that is largely looking for identifying and removing barriers to participation and belonging. Uh, for a team or an organization or a community. Um, and then I also use the word in talking about what is the experience of being included. So there's the active work of inclusion. There's also the experience of being included. What does it feel like and look like and sound like to be or to feel fully included in a group or a team or an organization? And again, they can mean different things to different people. That's generally how I use the words. Also, like in your bio, that you assert that we can ill afford to continue applying 20th century approaches to an increasingly critical set of 21st century issues. So two parts there. What are those 20th century approaches? Well, I think that diversity inclusion work, because it came, you know, its its origin, it, its roots is in compliance and affirmative action. Um, I think that that's still, that's still the way a lot of the work skews. And I think that we always need to do compliance work. We always need to follow the law. But this set of issues, this body of work is increasingly an opportunity for competitive advantage, and that requires a very different approach. Um, you can't just be thinking about it merely as a compliance issue, although that's what a lot of organizations do. If you say the words diversity and inclusion, some people's first response will be, did something happen? Is there a problem? They, they see it as something that's got to be done to address a problem rather than something that can be pursued for advantage. You are talking about the importance of language mm -hmm. and how we should be attentive to that at the very outset so that we are using words and interpreting them and their meaning in common mutual ways. And then you just mentioned the phrase affirmative action. And to me, that feels as if that is an extremely important concept and set of policies and practices. And yet I would sense that it feels 20th century and it now carries a lot of baggage. I wonder if you might speak to how you have encountered the use of that phrase in your work and whether you've had to sort of work or walk around it to speak to the same issues, but not to use language that has been right or wrong, tainted in some way. Yeah, I think uh, the response that I get to affirmative action is not a positive one, but I also think connected to that is it's not very well understood. Um, I, I don't meet a lot of people who are for or against affirmative action that can actually accurately explain what it is, but they have this idea of what it is. Um, and, and I don't avoid those conversations. My work just isn't focused very much on the compliance aspect of this work. It's focused kind of on, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, but there's always going to be a certain amount of compliance work that gets done, but that's not a, a chunk of this work that people get super excited about. It's also not a chunk of work that delivers um, 
easy to see value. It's a thing that you have to do. Um, and it's important. We have to do it for important reasons, but it's not uh, necessarily a body of work that helps you win. Um, so it's a different, it's a different, there's a different tone to those two conversations, but they are both part of it. So what are those 21st century issues that you referenced? On a grand scale, I, I, I don't know if there's a bigger challenge that we have in the 21st century than, um, peacefully coexisting on an increasingly small planet across a bunch of lines of difference. But more specific to the business context, I think, um, you know, three things come to mind. First of all, talent is diverse. Um, the demographics in our community, the demographics of our country continue to become more and more diverse. It's increasingly true that if you are not good at attracting, engaging, and retaining women and people of color, for example, you're competing for an increasingly smaller piece of the talent available. I think that's a flawed strategy. Customers and markets are also diverse. The same demographic trends are showing up there. You've got to be good at reaching out across those boundaries and engaging customers and delivering solutions. And inside the organizations, ideas and solutions also come from diverse places. Um, if we really care about innovation, which is another thing that I think organizations organizations talk more about than they actually do about. Um, if we really care about innovation, a big part of the highway there runs through this body of work. It's about bringing people with different perspectives, different identities, different backgrounds together in an inclusive space where they can all tell the truth to each other. Um, that's a big part of how you get good solutions uh, and new ideas. So extremely succinctly and powerfully, you have articulated three reasons why diversity and inclusion has value both to society and to the individual corporation. So why are we still screwing it up? <laughs> uh, I think there's a few answers to that question. One is I think most people still don't understand it. When, when they hear the words diversity inclusion, they don't think about the stuff that I just said. They think about affirmative action. They think about things like political correctness. They think about things like reverse discrimination. Um, when I survey people and ask them what diversity means, those are the kinds of answers that I get. So again, we're not having the same conversation. They're not against the stuff that I'm talking about. They're against what they think these words represent. Um, I was on an airplane not too long ago. So I ended up in a conversation with a gentleman next to me and he asked me what I did for a living. And I said, I do diversity and inclusion work. And he said, you're going to have to explain to me what that is. And I said, I'd be happy to, but before I do, what, what comes to mind? What do you associate it with? And he thought about it for a few seconds and he said, sounds like more Obamacare to me. So maybe a wonderful and delightful human being, but if he and I are going to try to have a conversation using those same words, it's not going to go very far because we're not remotely talking about the same thing. There's this wonderful line um, in the Dan and Chip Heath book, Switch. They say what often, oftentimes what looks like resistance is often a lack of clarity. Um, and I think that's very true. And I think it's very true, especially in this work. Um, I think because we have a lack of clarity, because there isn't a common language, we are oftentimes fighting battles that we really don't need to fight. Um, there is some real resistance to this work, but I think there's far less than, than what it actually seems like because we're just not all talking about the same thing. So I think a big part of the reason why we're screwing it up is because of that. Uh, we're not talking about the same thing. Not everyone has been exposed to the research on that business case. Um, I think another one of the reasons why it's difficult is people don't realize that inclusion is activist. They think it's the automatic byproduct of good intentions. If I'm a good person, that's all that I have to do, right? As long as I'm not filled with hatred or blind rage towards this particular group, that's all that I have to do. But in fact, 
you know, there's some pretty strong human tendencies around difference and likeness. We, we tend to give people that we think are like us the benefit of the doubt. We tend to be defensive towards people that we think are not like us. And how we sort for likeness and difference probably varies from person to person. But that's one of, that seems to be one of the strongest tendencies that human beings have. And so it's more than just good intentions. So here's something you mentioned earlier. You talked about your experience in the Marine Corps and you spent a year in Iceland. And you talked about it in terms of the cultural education you got being there. And you made the throwaway remark, of course, that being a straight 19-year-old, maybe a year in Iceland was just a bit too long. But I get that you said that there was something really formative about just seeing a different culture, yep. but not just seeing it, but living it yep. for a while. And that makes me think about a word that's come up recently for us, which is proximity. Mm. And I, I wonder if an important part of the work of diversity and inclusion demands proximity to difference for it to begin to make some sense. Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. Um, I think, and, and even in the organization, I think getting people together, developing actual relationships, um, you know, it's it's a lot easier to tell the truth to someone that you have some trust for. And, and trust lives in those real relationships. It doesn't come from title or tenure. And so getting people that are different, different racially, different by gender, different departments, different points in their careers together to develop real relationships, I think that's a pretty powerful thing because if you don't actually know anything about a person, then whether you like it or not, all you have to go on is your assumptions and your stereotypes about that person. Um, the, the space between us is going to be filled with something. It's either going to be filled with real stuff that we share or it's going to be filled with made up stuff. And I think far too often important relationships are filled with made up stuff and those don't work out very well for us. You said that earlier that uh, many of your uh, childhood friends and, and many of your Marine Corps friends would not recognize who you are now. And, and I can say that um, despite your self-description as um, a fierce, grim-looking character, <laughs> that you, you also are a poet. You love to read poetry. You mm. uh, clearly enjoy reading books, uh, given that you've, you've mentioned uh, a few of them. Describe that process of becoming what would we call it a Renaissance man, and and what you get out of that. I don't think I've ever been accused of being a Renaissance man before. You have now, Joe. The, the the reading thing has been a, a lifelong thing. Um, I'm I'm literally the boy that got in trouble because I got caught with a flashlight reading past my bedtime. Um, and including the poetry, that's always been uh, something that I've been interested in. Uh, so that's that's been a lifelong thing. I think, you know, what I've read and what I've been interested in reading has changed uh, certainly over time. Uh, but that's been around uh, for quite a while. I, I don't know. And I, and I don't think that qualifies me as a renaissance man. That, that I think you're reaching a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just wrap with this final invitation from me to you. You are passionately driven by this subject. What does the world look like if the work that you are doing begins in 2018 to perhaps draw to a fuller manifestation of what you're trying to achieve? I don't know that it has necessarily anything to do with my work, but I think that it is moving in that direction. I see organizations, uh, specifically, for example, organizations in the tech industry, taking a much more serious approach to this work, investing real resources, real expertise, data, technology. I do see some movement in that direction. But I think, you know, some of the things that happen when we get to a fuller manifestation is we live in a much more peaceful world. And I'm not just talking about the absence of formal armed conflict, but I'm also talking about 
the segregation and the divisions in our community, the political divisions that we have right now, the violence and unnecessary sickness. Um, I think that goes away um, as we move in that direction as well. Uh, and, and we know each other. Um, we know each other. We have real relationships with each other. We're connected to more diversity in our networks of relationships. And I think we all have a fuller, more accurate understanding of the world. So final thought, if there was one thing, just one small behavior or change or habit or activity that a listener could do once they've finished listening to this show, what would you maybe suggest that they consider? Leave your comfort zone relentlessly. Even if it's tiny steps, leave your comfort zone. Go to different places, meet different people, read different things, listen to different things, eat different foods. Even if it's that small, be relentless about leaving your comfort zone and your world will consistently get a little bit bigger and you will benefit from that greater diversity of input. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. Joe, thanks for your work and thank you for being on the show. Thank you. Did I answer your question? I, sorry, that was, I got a little rambly there. No, it was great. <laughs> I loved it. Thank you. Basically, in essence, if I could just say, uh, John Perry, if you're listening. Yes, yes. <laughs> find me. <laughs> this is the guy, apparently, that maybe you might want to get in touch with or keep right. hiding from. <laughs> <laughs>